What springs to mind when you hear the words fashion collaboration? No matter how far down you are in the generational alphabet, the term is ubiquitous for the dichotomous pairing of designers, artists, brands, celebs, or icons in the creation of a product or experience that seems to awaken our collective superfan with enough power to crash even the most robust website infrastructure from frenzied demand. I'm not the least bit embarrassed to admit that on occasion, I've willed myself to stay alert into the wee hours of Pacific Standard Time, (laughs) furiously refreshing my browser until the digital queue opens to us lucky ones first in line for a coveted limited edition designer collab. My interest is always piqued with these types of fashion convergences. There's always something so enticing about two artistic forces colliding to create a synthesis between their two identities to bring about something entirely new and unexpected. The origins of the word collaboration, which ironically is a noun to denote the action of quote unquote laboring together, quite literally, by the way, as the spelling derives from the Latin co, meaning with or together, and laborare meaning to labor, and it dates back to around 1855. Etymologists believe that the word was first used in French literature to denote a specific scientific achievement. And aren't you curious as to what that scientific achievement could have been? Is this a rabbit hole, perhaps? (laughs) Just call me Alice. My wild notion is that it derived from the birth of color theory. Now, stick with me on this, as I have to set women's history aside ever so quickly to lay a little foundation for the women in today's episode. In 1824, French chemist Michel-Eugène Chevreux was named director of dye works at the Gobelin Tapestry Factory in Paris in response to complaints about technical inadequacies. He found that the often criticized black dye was technically flawless, but was seen as weak and reddish when surrounded by deep blues and purples. Chevreux called this effect simultaneous contrast, defining it as the tendency for a color to appear to shift toward the complementary shade of its neighbor, both in hue and darkness. He published his research in 1839, and it became the go-to guide for visual arts design principles involving tapestries, carpets, furniture, mosaics, churches, museums, apartments, formal gardens, theaters, maps, topography, framing, stained glass, women's clothing, and even military uniforms. In 1855, he expanded his findings to include a classification system for colors in a chromatic diagram showing complementary colors and other relationships. Think of it as the fancy French cousin of the color wheel. Ergo, Could the theory of colors shifting together to create new complementary shades possibly be the inspiration for the word collaboration? And furthermore, are the principles of color theory analogous to the human dynamics of laboring together in collaboration? Could this be the most ridiculously in-depth conversation about brand collabs you never knew you needed? I'm here to argue yes to all by telling you the remarkable story of when simultaneous contrast theories Girl Wonder and Hollywood's highest-paid silent film actress converged over the creation of a coat that now travels the world. Welcome to the Virtuosa Society podcast, where I'll be diving into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations that were born from various shared struggles between female creatives. 
We're going to unlock the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood beyond the missing pages in history books to the nuanced truths and realities and and revelations that have unlocked true creativity in women all in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic creative non-linear lives i'm katie Harmon, your host i'm insatiably curious a lifelong seeker and a storyteller primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half of my life now I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate, both foundational experiences from which I built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women by women and for women. Let's unlock today's story, shall we? Paris was abuzz in 1924, quite literally. The glow from rows and rows of electric streetlights illuminated the city's renewed vigor, fueled by a growing community of young poets, artists, philosophers, architects, and creatives infusing life after the horrors of the Great War. The heart of the mid-1920s palpated to the rhythm of the Surrealists. While the city was already well known as La Vie Lumière, literally translated to the city of light, Francophiles argue that the phrase has more to do with the age of enlightenment and less about the actual light fixtures. During the 18th century, Paris was the hub of intellectual and philosophical invention. But now it seemed the roaring 20s of the 20th century had become the age of enlightenment 2.0 and fearless avant-garde artist Sonia Delaunay was at the center of it all after being named the city's most daring and visually thrilling Parisian fashion designer. But nearly four decades before the height of her fashion career, Sonia was born Sarah Stern in 1885 to a working-class Jewish family in Odessa, Ukraine. Although her parents were poor, her childhood was richly steeped in the culture of Russian folk craft. Brimming with preternatural talent, she was drawn to the color and bright costumes of Ukrainian peasant weddings and the way the women of her village composed patchworks out of fabric remnants to adorn walls and objects with vibrant color. It left an indelible impression on young Sarah, even after she was sent to live with an affluent aunt and uncle in St. Petersburg at the age of five, because they could afford to give her a robust education and greater exposure to the art world. She became fluent in French, English, and German, and traveled throughout Europe to galleries and museums, discovering and falling madly in love with art. Her artistic talent further blossomed at age 14 while attending the Academy of Fine Arts in Karlsruhe, Germany. In 1906, at the age of 21, she left Germany to study at the Académie de la Palette and made Paris the city she would call her forever home. It was Paris that introduced her to the work of Matisse, Gouchard, and Van Gogh, who used color and shape in new and exciting ways, as well as ambitious Cubist painter Robert Delaunay, who would later become her husband and one of her most devoted champions. But first, she had to find a way to stay in Paris instead of returning to St. Petersburg at her family's insistence. So she defied convention by booking her first solo show, and marrying the German art critic who 
happened to own the respected gallery where her newly minted career as artist Sonia Cherk would flourish. This arrangement was merely a foretaste of her deft entrepreneurial spirit. In Wilhelm Uda's gallery, her work quickly caught the eye of Parisian bourgeoisie alongside contemporaries Bloch and Picasso. And while the critical praise for her dynamic use of vivid color and portraiture was genuine, her marriage to Wilhelm was not. It was purely a marriage of convenience to protect his homosexuality and to allow her to stay in her beloved new city. To complicate matters, her chemistry with Robert Dulanet was simply undeniable. Sonia stated, In Robert Dulanet, I found a poet, a poet who wrote not with words, but with colors. Thus, Wilhelm and Sonia amicably divorced, remaining loyal friends throughout their lifetimes, and allowing her to marry Robert in 1910. Wilhelm famously recalled, A friend of mine felt he could make my wife more perfectly happy than I could. Sonia found Robert to be the ideal combination of creatively sympathetic workmate and artistic counterpoint with a voice different enough from hers to allow the pair to coexist fairly harmoniously. Although Sonia would eventually bear the title of chief breadwinner throughout their marriage. Their newlywed nest became a lively meeting place for avant-garde artists and writers, whom they hosted for Sunday afternoon soirees filled to the brim with conversation, food, and drink. But it was actually motherhood that would set her on an entirely unique trajectory from the other talented peers revolving through their home. When Sonia gave birth to their son Charles in 1911, she stitched a little patchwork blanket for him. 70 roughly rectangular and triangular pieces of shimmery cloth were inventively placed in relation to each other based on the principles of color resonance and harmony. It was simultaneously a touching homage to her Ukrainian folk craft roots, melded with the Parisian avant-garde of her present life, and it would come to mark an important point in her work when she moved from figurative to abstract, intuitively anticipating what was to become her signature style. In her memoir, she recalled, when it was finished, the arrangements of the pieces of material seemed to me to evoke cubist concepts, and then we tried to apply the same process to other objects and paintings, with we referring to Robert and Sonia's mutual fascination with the color theories of Michel-Eugène Chevrolet. Remember him? What was meant to be a practical, albeit elevated, item to wrap around her newborn baby. The blanket's design actually ushered in a radical new movement, which she named simultanéisme, the exploration of a patchwork approach to color by separating it from reality and allowing it to blend together in geometric patterns and harmonies that resonate together like music or poetry. <laughs> Sounds too good to be true, but trust me when I say her artwork is as glorious in person as that sounds. But more on that later in this episode. While Sonia would never return to her native homeland, she was keen to invest the rich color and pattern of her Russian past into her new art, but not only for sentimental reasons. She astutely recognized the potential interest her audience would have with her seemingly exotic Russian background, better allowing her to develop her name in the Paris art scene whilst promoting her theories around color. 
Sonia Delaunay, as she would be known for the rest of her storied career, had just taken the first step toward becoming more than an artist. She was on the fast track to becoming a bona fide brand. 1912, 13, and 14, what rich and explosive years for Robert and me, Sonia would remember in her memoir. I like to think of her as expressing it in that way. <laughs> Robert is prophesying and could not be stopped. Before the outbreak of the war, Robert was shooting off rockets in all directions. Back on Earth, I gathered the falling sparks. I tended the more intimate and transient fires of everyday life. Meaning that not only was she holding down the fort with domestic duties, but also managing to be artistically innovative and profitable with her new works. Seemingly everyday life to Sonia was captured in the most incredibly imaginative, vibrant, and dynamic ways. Such as her artwork, Le Bar Bouillet, an oil on mattress fabric, horizontally measuring 38 inches by 102.5 inches, depicting customers dancing the tango in a nightclub with intense colors that form various shapes moving across the dance floor. And my personal favorite, her artwork, Electric Prisms, inspired by the electric streetlights on Paris boulevards. The canvas is composed of two major centers of light, radiating and overlapping in a multitude of colors. As the viewer, you can't help but be transported by the energy that seems to wash over you as your eyes swim in the vibrant colors. Between 1914 and 1920, the Delaunay family's Parisian life was uprooted by war and revolution. They bounced between Madrid and Portugal for safety, but soon found themselves on a financial precipice. Up to that point, Sonia had been able to support a fairly bohemian lifestyle with additional income from renting properties she owned in Russia, inherited from her aunt and uncle. But when the properties were seized in the Bolshevik Revolution, she had to strategically pivot. And pivot she did. In essence, this meant her creative life needed to be more commercial. Later in his life, Sonia's son Charles recounted, at a time when only a few excited suffragettes demanded the right to vote and access to areas so far reserved for men, the material well-being of the family rested exclusively on my mother. Drawing upon her early sewing and design skills and infusing her trademark color blocking, she officially merged Simultanisme, the movement, into Simultané, the brand. In 1918, she established her own boutique in Spain named Casa Sonia, where her fashion and fabric gained a cult following as she attractively branched into clothing commissions, furniture, costume design for the ballet russe, as well as shoes, parasols, skirts, and sideboards. She could and did design it all. For me, there is no gap between my painting and my so-called decorative work. I never considered the minor arts to be artistically frustrating. On the contrary, it was an extension of my art, proclaimed Sonia. While Sonia had found commercial success in Madrid, she longed to return to Paris, where Gertrude Stein was proclaiming it as the center of practically everything of importance being written, painted, or composed. In 1920, Sonia made trips to Paris to weigh the possibility of relocating her fashion activities. To be a big fish in the Madrid pond was one thing. To impose herself in the capital of fashion, perhaps quite another. 
especially when visionaries like Chanel were turning sports clothes into everyday life and giving costume jewelry an intrinsic value of its own. Still reeling from the pangs of the Russian Revolution, Sonia was resolved to keep Russian craftsmanship at the center of her designs. So she first set her sights on finding a business partner among Russian immigrants who had managed to hold on to their fortunes. She knew the latest czarist ambassador to Paris, who helped her employ a troop of Russian refugee women in her sewing rooms to help them gain a foothold after fleeing their homes or worse yet, losing their loved ones. Feeling a bit unsettled themselves, the Delaneys were camping out in a friend's apartment when 10-year-old Charles brought home a lady to meet his mother. The woman apparently knew of the Delaneys, but more interestingly, Sonia found out she had a huge apartment for rent. The apartment was on the fifth floor at 19 Boulevard Melegerbe. There was no elevator, but it had five large rooms. And from the balcony, there was a view of the Paris rooftops and the Eiffel Tower, as well as the bustling new French society below. Sonia climbed the five flights and said, yes. It was expensive, but big enough to be both living quarters and home base for her projected fashion empire. The stairs were perhaps a bit much for some clients, but on the other hand, Sonia realized maliciously the stairs might also deter clients from coming back for too many fittings. Smart. With startup capital of 500,000 francs from a new partner, Atelier Simultané became Sonia's new couture house and fabric design shop. Sonia was now more than ever in charge of her own growing business. I had every ability to be a woman executive, she would say, but I also had other priorities. I never liked the business world, but there I was with corporate headquarters, letterhead, publicity budget, display windows, yet I was leasing railroad cars to ship printed fabrics. The new apartment slash business space was also transformed into an environmental collage of simultaneous colors and participatory art. The Delaunays resumed their Sundays just as before, but this time visitors ranging from artists, poets, writers, and intellectuals were invited to take brush and paint in hand and leave their marks on the walls. The entrance was soon covered with poems, artwork, and signatures. Women would wear Sonia's dress designs, and Sonia herself would hop about the party posing as a quote-unquote living sculpture in a dress of her design. The Delaunay home was a rare combination of invention, style, and fashion. And the enthusiasm with which the young surrealist accepted the Delaunays made up for the loss of Robert and Sonia's pre-war charmed circle and disposable income. Her clientele therefore included women who were known for their character and eccentricity. To wear Sonia Delaunay was to make a statement. Her wide array of designs epitomized the liberation and freedom of the era. Garments were deliberately cut to suit the real lives of women, making her a pioneer and the ultimate model for how women's roles could shift and morph. Her art was wearable. It was the lifestyle statement of a new breed, the creative modern woman. And at this juncture in Sonia's life is where her art, particularly the electric concentric circles and coruscating kaleidoscope of colors that seemed to dance dimensionally off the fabric and the canvas and into the air, imitated life, particularly on the day Gloria strolled into the Atelier Simultané. 
Enter Hollywood's highest paid actress, Gloria Swanson. The reigning silent screen goddess with an international fan base rivaling any present day star. She was also the prize clothes horse of the day, and therefore the acquisition of a patchwork Sonia Delaunay coat was a must. This was also the juncture in Gloria's life where she was the most personally and professionally resplendent. The city of Paris and all that it came to represent became a touchstone for a pinnacle dividing her life into two distinct halves. In 1980, when she was 81 years old, she published a daring memoir and started the book with the phrase, I'm going to start with a moment in my life when I thought I had never been happier, because until that moment, I hadn't ever assessed the events that had come before it. And once it was over, I could never view my life or my career in the same way again. Not to burst the suspense, but the pinnacle of her life wasn't a fashion collaboration with Sonia Dunane, although it did soon come to signify the Gloria that she was happiest as. The defining moment? A news clipping from the day read, Gloria Swanson, thousand dollar a day film actress is now Marquise de la Fanaise. She was married today in the almost romantic secrecy of the Passy Town Hall. Only nine persons were there. They, including your correspondent, did not know what was afoot until an hour before the ceremony. Gloria recounted, I was then 25 and the most popular female celebrity in the world, with the possible exception of my friend Mary Pickford. Headlines in North and South America and Europe usually referred to me by my first name only. I had starred in more than 30 successful films, six in a row directed by Cecil B. DeMille. And my leading men had included all the great heartthrobs, from Wallace Reed to Rudolph Valentino. Not only was I the first American star to have filmed a major picture abroad, but I was also the first celebrity in pictures to be marrying a titled European. All over the world, fans were rejoicing because Cinderella had married the prince. Now let's rewind just a bit to lay out the circumstances that brought her to Paris and to the threshold of Sonia's atelier in 1925. Gloria had reached a tipping point in her career. Her work in DeMille's costume dramas had made her a megastar years earlier, but she yearned to focus more on character-driven projects. Breaking a successful formula is always a gamble, but it paid off for her in spades. While she was working on 1924's Her Love Story, she was busy plotting her next career move, which turned out to be getting the film rights to a play by the name of Madame Saint-Gene about a French washerwoman who becomes a duchess and a friend of Napoleon's. She loved the play and thought it was well-written and funny. And as she and a friend discussed the project further, they agreed that such a beloved French story needed a French director and to be filmed on location in the same place as Napoleon had actually lived. Gloria put all of her focus on Madame Saint-Gene and headed on to Paris with the enthusiastic support of the head of the European division of Paramount Pictures. But no American had yet been granted permission to film on such historic locations. Once the film was billed as the first Franco-American Film Alliance, she was not only given permission to film on the locations she had her heart set on, including Fontainebleau and La Mont Maison, but she also got the French director she wanted. To add some icing to the cake, she hired Henri de la Falaise, Marquis de la Coudre, to act as something of a chauffeur slash translator slash personal assistant slash eye candy. 
Although he had a title, Henri did not have much money, but he did have enough influence and connections to help the production continue to run smoothly and to connect Gloria to the darlings of Parisian society, to include Sonia Delaunay. Before long, he would also become Gloria's third husband. Out of all the box office hits she made during her career, to include her infamous turn as Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, delivering the now famous line, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Of course, nobody can say it like Gloria. <laughs> None of them reflects on how big of a star she was at the height of her fame, like 1925's Madame Saint-Jean. In a savvy and bold term, the very same year, she was inspired to bank on her success by forming her own production company, one of the first women to do so, and thus the Swanson Producing Corporation was born. Whether it was the newfound confidence from being able to control a project of her choosing with such magnitude and precedence, or the combination of the love she shared with Henri and the magic of a Parisian society who wholeheartedly embraced her singular artistry and dynamism, most likely all of the above, Gloria found a kindred spirit in Sonia Delaunay the day she climbed to the fifth floor of Sonia's atelier. Gloria remembered, I was supposed to be the world's foremost clothes horse when it came to films, but the styles and cuts and fabrics in the best Paris showrooms simply took my breath away. What's more, everyone in them knew me, and they were all as thrilled as I was every time I went into one of them. In many ways, Paris seemed like home to me. I felt that I belonged there. The flowers, clothes, foods, perfumes, wines, all delighted me. Sonia's inventiveness, her feeling for fantasy, and the clarity and power of her colors gave her clothes an alluring visual vitality, which intrinsically spoke to the heart of Gloria Swanson, the woman who loved deeply but endured great personal heartache. Yet, Sonia's clothes also complemented the public persona of Gloria Swanson, the movie star, the face of a generation of women who dared to see themselves in the characters she portrayed on screen. We can only venture a guess as to what the two women talked about that fateful day. I like to romanticize that deep in conversation, they glowed like the complimentary aura Sonia painted the decade before. As women only know, there is an electricity that sparks when a woman recognizes her own ambition and shared struggles in another woman. Gloria had this to say about Sonia. Sonia Delaunay is a genius. Her clothes make you feel beautiful, and they make you feel like you're part of a work of art. What we do know, though, is that a one-of-a-kind woolen embroidered coat was commissioned in geometric shades of rich, spicy reds, browns, and creams, with straight lines predominant, as well as diamonds and stripes and straight-edged lines turned at right angles. The design is a statement that speaks to both Sonia and Gloria's twin flames of entrepreneurial spirit, as if the excitement of the whirling ballroom had been supplanted by a new vision for the glamour of modern womanhood as they saw it. Writer Claire Gall described the convergence thusly. Gloria, as the Sonia Delaunay woman, is radiantly reflected in her colorful attire. The black, white, and red stripe runs down her almost like a new meander, giving her movements her own rhythm. 
And when she goes out, she slips into the delightful mole coat, which is covered with wool embroidery, so it looks almost woven, and its lines filled in nuances of brown, rusty red, and violet. It is a coat that is worthy of the moon, and that was born of a poem. In essence, it was a true masterpiece, and a symbol of the creative collaboration between two extraordinary women. So singularly striking, so daring, and an undeniable synthesis of the artists. It has become one of the centerpieces of a vastly varied trove of groundbreaking works by Sonia. The meeting of these two creative powerhouses was a moment that changed the course of fashion and art history. Years before designer Elsa Schiaparelli and artist Salvador Dali's lobster dress, which has long been touted as the first fashion collaboration. Their collaboration not only produced a piece of clothing that is by definition the intersection of art and fashion, but also pushed the boundaries of what was possible in design. Famous fashion editor Diana Vreeland said that the Sonia Delaunay success of 1925 was, quote, a one-woman campaign of irresistible visual exuberance that would reverberate in fashion decades later. In the chromatic concussions of the 1960s, the outrageous shock of the punks and the lush fascinations of Oscar de la Renta, Yves Saint Laurent, Perry Ellis, and Stephen Sprouse. After all, it was she who gave the body permission to drape itself proudly in the incandescent and glorious rhythms of life. To me, this famous code is a testament to the power of collaboration as it was originally defined as laboring together. A reminder of what extraordinary innovation is possible when complex creative women are in the same room. We have the capacity to create things and experiences that transcend time and inspire future generations. And I don't think my argument about color theory inspiring the very art and act of collaboration is too far off considering this story, right? Your Honor, I rest my case. I was never more motivated by an art exhibit than when I saw the extensive collection of works by Sonia Delaunay in person at the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Denmark on my final day of two weeks in beautiful Copenhagen last spring. It was there I saw the glorious coat with my own eyes, alongside a truly dizzying array of remarkable and multifaceted works that now occupy a very special quote-unquote safety deposit box in my memory, including a wildly attractive Matra 530 sports car Sonia designed in 1967 as part of a project to raise money for medical research in honor of her beloved husband Robert, who died of cancer in 1941. I've never been much for cars, but this was truly the only one I would ever linger over in admiration. It was awe-inspiring. I didn't want to leave. Had it not been for the train, I had to catch back to Copenhagen to fly back to the States less than 24 hours later. On the long flight home, drifting in and out of sleep, I had the most vivid dreams of my life as Sonia's colors merged with my subconscious. I didn't want to wake up. I carried that experience with me as if I were hand carrying one of Sonia's designs at my side when I was fortunate enough to be one half of a fashion collaboration with inspiring designer and owner of Buru, Morgan Hutchinson. Buru had created the stage pieces I wore for the debut of a new cabaret show in New York City the month prior to my trip to Copenhagen. 
And then we set out to design a capsule collection of pieces inspired by the vibrancy of Broadway past and the heralding of the present new year. One of the central pieces in our collaboration collection was a coat, actually a blazer, the tuxedo-esque blazer slash coat of my dreams, inspired by an image of icon Judy Garland in the movie Summerstock that I had emailed to Morgan as we were cooking up ideas for my stage pieces. When Morgan named it the Katie Cocktail Blazer, I couldn't help well up with gratitude for the experience itself, but also for the trailblazing example set forth by Sonia and Gloria that I had just seen with my own eyes. When Morgan and I sat down to reminisce about the project, she offered the most beautiful perspective about her own parallel entrepreneurial journey to Sonia's as well as truly valuable insight about fashion's ability to tell our stories in our own way. How do you draw inspiration for your designs? What inspires them? Well, I think what is, you know, Buru was inspired by motherhood, the act of the art, perhaps, of motherhood and, and what are the necessities we have for our clothes. But honestly, the look of Buru is inspired by mothers in my own life. So, and what I think, I'm a very eclectic dresser and I know it's because of the influences of all of those women. So I had a very mod 1960s grandmother with her bright blonde hair and they spent a ton of time in Miami. I have a very traditional mother who was more Ralph Lauren plaid walking shorts, but with some flair, she'd like, she'd pop on some eighties flair. Love, love I'm wearing that. shoulder pads right now. <laughs> she loves shoulder pads. She always traveled with a bathing suit and a matching cover up, which is a big part of like our, our spring collections always are about like dressing at the pool. Also, it just helps me feel more confident. And then I had a great grandmother who couldn't afford the finer things, but she could walk into any store and sew exactly wow. what she saw. So she used every penny saved to buy Dior turbans to go with these looks. Her hat collection was unbelievable. And to the point where it took me being an adult to understand what type of investment that was for her. Because, you know, as a little kid, I didn't understand that these hats were so fine, but her bank account was very normal. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> you know? I love that. And 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 to just the appreciation she had for fashion and figuring out how to you know use it so all of those influences come into play i very much want to create the mindset of you know when you went into my great grandmother's closet what was being preserved what she was taking care of she also wore it she was they were not just hanging there um idle she was wearing them but she was caring for them and and what she spent on them or her time spent if she had made them, she knew she knew the value of a piece of clothing. I, I think our blazers, like the Katie cocktail blazer, I think all in has 28 different puzzle pieces, you know, with the lining, the lapel, the pockets. So when you think about someone is putting that together with care, sewing each of those pieces, and fast fashion has really made us forget that a person exactly right. does all of that. And An artist, truly, really. If you don't have that, the wherewithal to recognize what your anchor is, then you will fly off of <laughs> off of that central mechanism. Just into yeah, absolutely. Where you go. And yeah, totally. 
No, that's everything you were saying resonates so, so deeply, as do your colors, as do your designs. That that cocktail blazer that we designed, that you designed, that I had the great pleasure of (laughs) of wearing. No, it's all it's all collaborative. Uh, you know, I have gravitated towards that, that a ton and it makes me, yeah. I have worn it so much, especially on like dinner dates because I feel I sophisticated and age appropriate, even I though know. honestly, I hate that expression. But there are times, you know, when you just, I, you see other 20 year olds <laughs> on date night. And what I like about that is like, I'm showing leg, but it looks sophisticated and you can put a little blouse under it if you want more coverage or you can just wear it solo. But I, and then I also throw it on with jeans, but that's a piece I've gravitated towards a lot. And, um, I know I want to use that silhouette with some more casual fabrics too, and see if that resonates with women. Masculine feminine balance too. There's something about that tuxedo esque Mm -hmm. long blazer that's part of my style DNA. And so when I saw it on the likes of Judy Garland and then started to dig just a little bit more to see how many other iterations there mm-hmm. were, what, our iteration is my favorite. It's my absolute yes. favorite. It is so good. good for the reasons that you good. just described, but it's because it's central mm-hmm. to something that really, really resonates. And that's what makes what you're doing yes. imperative. Morgan, truly. A good friend of mine said, who's in the industry, said to me, I think that you could start, you know, slow. You could hire your own sewer and maybe you're still getting it cut as a contract work and maybe a pattern maker is contract, but start building it. And that is truly what we did. We bought three machines, three different kinds. Um, And now if you were to see the factory, you'd see how many different kinds of machines are in there and how much we've learned. And we hired one sewer and her name's Julia and she still works with us to this day. And she's helped build this factory for us, which is now close to 30 people. And we have every kind of machine that you would need. And we also have everything else in-house, our pattern makers, our sample makers, our cutters, our finishers. And then it literally the, there's kind of like two levels in the factory, not two stories, but like a split level. So the top level is all factory. And then when it's finished, it goes down into the bottom level, which is the fulfillment. And so goes out the door for customer orders. So everything is under this one roof. And it gave us the autonomy to grow at our pace. And that's what I think is so hard for small businesses. You, there's no middle. There's, there's not a first step. It's like, okay, you want to produce a clothing line? Great. We need you to make 300 of every single item. And that's just not a reality because you're going to have some bombs. So if you're sitting on all that inventory, there's no money for the next round of inventory to correct those mistakes, to learn from them. And so even though it's scary to be on the line for all those people and their livelihoods, it does give us the the space to learn, grow, and pivot. Absolutely. So essentially, yeah, that, was that was kind of a long-winded fantastic. answer. <laughs> it's, it's really incredible because I'm, I'm now drawing a through thread, pun intended, between your story and truly mm-hmm. the story of haute couture and what we now get to mm-hmm. experience or, or 
excuse me, I should reverse that because we don't get to experience haute couture in the way that so many women were experiencing it when fashion was really, really evolving, right? We're talking turn of the 19th century into the 20th century when women were still having to Mm -hmm. uh, go to a seamstress, go to a tailor, pick out fabric and say, this is what I want and have it completely crafted to them. Part of the inspiration behind all of this, you know, is to really help. I, I like to use the word shift because we're a small business. So change seems, I mean, aspirational shift seems realistic and something we can really try to do every day is just shift the mindset. We're not going to move the whole right away needle. <laughs> um, yes. But if you can shift and think, okay, I can't afford to for a hundred percent of my wardrobe to be in this level, you know, fast fashion is going to be a reality for most people. But even if you said, I'm going to make a commitment that 10% of the people, 10% of the items in my closet are not fast fashion. I think it'd be interesting if you took that challenge to see, you know, two years down the road, does it grow to 20? Because you realize you grab it more. It's, it's, it's staying in style more. You value it more. I don't know. It'd be. In, I think you have to start the in process. Order to shift the pendulum. You've got to just nudge it. You've got to start the swing, mm-hmm. and then the momentum yeah. takes over. You know, it's really interesting about fashion, and one of the things uh, that I am drawn to whenever I put anything on my body, it's it's a statement. It's a statement that I'm here. I'm alive. I I I want to be seen. I want to be loved, right? I mean, we can get down to all of those human intrinsic values, those needs as humans. And yeah. as much as, as we tend to, or we can tend to trivialize what we put on our bodies for women, especially, and I don't want to always just peg it down to women in terms of fashion. It's everyone in general, but especially for women, there is a connection mm-hmm. between each other. When someone comes up to you and says, oh, I love what you're wearing, there is some sort of a, mm-hmm. of a cranial connection in our brains <laughs> that recognizes the humanity yes. in that other person through what you have put on you because it is, it's unique. It could, we could be wearing the same thing, but we're all, it's always going to look different because we, our bodies are different. We are different. The way that we see the world is different. And I think that that is so beautifully reflected in what we choose to put on our bodies. And, and when it comes to unique pieces that are made in such a way where there is care behind it, the people that are, are, the fabric of Buru, pun intended, <laughs> your, your factory. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. There is so much heart and love in, in every stitch, in every seam, in every single thing that they put together via your vision. And it feels so special to be putting that on my body. And I know that that is what keeps Buru oh, fans so- like myself coming back. And you know, let's let's go to this topic of of shifting and pivoting, though, because I've got one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Because I know that you have experienced yes. this, and we have all experienced this, and this is something 
really imperative to Sonia's life as well. How have you personally approached the pivots throughout the years of your life as a business owner, as a founder, as a mother, as a woman, and as a creative? So I think it's, you know, I, on this journey, I ha I was uh, guru turns 10 in September. And when I think about the evolution of Vuru, it's mind boggling. I mean, just, I feel like we've been three different businesses in a way. And, um, and that pivot is challenging. In fact, we're in the process of a rebrand. And I bring this up because there's been so much self-reflection in rebranding. And the message is somewhat the same, but how we create things, how we want to present ourselves and and the layers of story we want to tell is why we're rebranding because we know we need we can tell the story better and we've just been doers and let's get this thing up and going and now we need to make sure the story is clear for everyone who comes to our site for the new first time and has no idea who we are and but as i've done this self reflection it's been so fascinating and in preparation for the 10 year celebration i've gone back to the first thing i designed the first vintage piece I bought on my own as a seventh grader to wear to my seventh grade Christmas dance. And what I've seen is I've been wearing the same thing <laughs> for my whole life. And the reason that that's important to me is because as I've had to pivot and learn how to be a mom, learn how to be a designer, learn how to be a boss of so many people, I've really stayed true to my aesthetic and you're you're talking about how what we wear isn't important, but how we present ourselves is just the external part of who we are within. You know, I love happy colors because I want to try to make people happy. I'm a people pleaser. I like loud things because I want to make a statement. And I want to make an impact on people's life. And I am not a surgeon. So um, I resorted to a non-life-saving tactic of trying to make you smile in your clothes. But I think that I've pivoted into role. I think, well, I think what I think is important is That's we're right. all going to have to pivot in life, but making sure that you hang on to that person inside because you have a lot of outside voices that will say, you know, like the new colors of Buru. Because we started Buru as a marketplace, we kept it all black and white, so simple. It was meant to be a clean palette that all these other brands could emerge from the pages. Yes. And now we're our own brand. And I want the colors to be several shades of pink and chartreuse and poppy red and all the colors I've loved my whole life. And there is some, you know, you sometimes get those outside forces that, oh, are, well, are those sophisticated colors? Are those? And what I've learned is that if you ever try to go, you can, you should take advice, but you can't get too far from your That's core right. because then you get lost. I know you, you, you are so oh, humble and you are so, so um, you are so kind. And when you say that you're not a surgeon, oh, I think you're changing the world. One <laughs> cocktail blazer at a time, oh. girl. Phew. That was such a hearty and fulfilling episode to create. <laughs> I am bursting at the seams to share more stories throughout this first season too. If you're intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share, as well as rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. For a link to the exhibit of Sonia Delani's work that I mentioned in today's episode, please head over to the show notes. 
Seeing her groundbreaking work in person is something I wholeheartedly recommend. Check out Virtuosa Society's Instagram at Virtuosa Society for videos and images from my visit to the Sonia Delaney exhibit at the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Denmark. My thanks to Morgan Hutchinson, my friend, founder of Buru, for our conversation and for taking up Sonia's torch as the next generation of thoughtful, collaborative fashion. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser. Title music is by Anna Lonstrom.